Alright, so we're going to start off with biology and behavior. Um, we're going to look at psychology and sociology by looking at the biological side of psychology. So we're going to go through the history of neuropsych, looking at structure and function of the nervous system, the endocrine systems, and gene and environment effects on behavior, as well as some parts of psychological development. So, to start off with a brief history of neuropsychology, we're going to look at some researchers in the 19th century who looked at behavior from a physiological perspective, um, and they ended up basically forming the foundation of what we know about neuroanatomy now, and we're able to link the functions of specific areas of the brain with thought and behavior. So first we have Franz Gall, who had one of the earliest theories that behavior, intellect, and personality could be linked to brain anatomy. He developed phrenology, which the basic idea here is that if a particular trait was well developed, then the part of the brain responsible for that trait could expand. This kind of expansion would push the area of the skull that covered that part of the brain outward and cause a bulge on the head. Crazy. Um, yeah, and then once this bulge occurs, then you can measure the psychological attributes by feeling or measuring that skull. And even though this phrenology belief was false, it generated more research on brain functions, and it was basically the kickstarter for other psychologists. Then we have Pierre Florenz, who studied the functions of the major sections of the brain. He did this through extirpation or ablation um, on rabbits and pigeons. So you surgically remove parts of the brain and observe the behavioral consequences. So this researcher's work led to the assertion that specific parts of the brain have specific functions and that removing one part weakens the whole brain. William James is the father of American psychology who looked at how the mind adapts to the environment. His views form the foundation for the systems of thought in psychology. Oh, specifically just functionalism. Um, looking at how mental processes help individuals adapt to their environments. Then we have three more. John Dewey, um, who also worked in functionalism because he wrote an article that criticized the reflex arc concept, um, which breaks the process of reacting to a stimulus into discrete parts. Do we believe that psychology should study on should focus on studying an organism as a whole as it functions to adapt to the environment? Then we have Broca, which you might know as or Paul Broca, similar to the Broca's area. Um, he examined the behavioral deficits of people with brain damage demonstrating that specific functional impairments could be linked with specific brain lesions. Um, yeah, and he did this through looking at a man who wasn't able to speak and figured out that that disability was due to a lesion in a specific area on the left side of the brain, now referred to as Broca's area. And we have Hermann von Helmholtz, who measured the speed of a nerve impulse. And he related the speed of these impulses to reaction time, which gave a nice link between behavior and nervous system activity. Um, and because he provided one of the earliest measurable links between psychology and physiology, he's usually credited with the transition. 
um, into the realm of quantifiable natural science. And then we have Sir Charles Sherrington as our last fella at the turn of the century um, who inferred the existence of synapses. And he, the one thing that didn't carry over is that he thought synaptic transmission was electrical, but we know that this is a chemical process now. So, looking at the human nervous system. So we have over 100 billion cells that coordinate, communicate, and regulate signals for the rest of the body. Um, both mental and physical action occur when the body can react to external stimuli using the nervous system. So we have three kinds of nerve cells. We have sensory neurons, motor neurons, and interneurons. Sensory neurons are known as afferent, with an A. And they transmit sensory information from receptors to the spinal cord and brain. So away, afferent, away from receptors. Um, motor neurons are efferent, with an E. Transmit motor information from the brain and spinal cord to muscles and glands. So, don't know an E word for that, but we'll think of it. And then we have interneurons, which are found between other neurons and are the most numerous. Um, they are located in the brain and the spinal cord and link to reflexive behavior. Um, neural circuits called reflex arcs will control this type of reflexive behavior. So like if someone steps on a nail, receptors in the foot detect that pain. And then the pain signal is transmitted by sensory neurons, afferent, away from the site up to the spinal cord. And then at that point, those sensory neurons connect with inner neurons, which then relay the pain impulses up to the brain. And then instead of waiting for the brain to send out a signal, the interneurons send signals to the muscles of both legs directly, causing the individual to reflexively withdraw the foot in pain and, you know, simultaneously transfer their weight to the other foot. And the original sensory information will still make its way up to the brain, but by that time, the muscles have already responded to the pain thanks to the cooperation of the reflex arcs. So the nervous system can be divided into two components, the central and peripheral. The central is composed of brain and spinal cord, and the peripheral is made up of nerve tissue and fibers inside the brain and spinal cord. The peripheral nervous system includes all 31 pairs of nerves, which are called spinal nerves and they emanate from the spinal cord, and 12 pairs of nerves emanate directly from the brain called cranial nerves. The olfactory and optic nerves, which are cranial nerves 1 and 2, are outgrowths of the central nervous system, but they're still part of the peripheral nervous system. And so the peripheral connects the central to the rest of the body. So the peripheral nervous system is then continued to be divided into the somatic and autonomic nervous system. Somatic is sensory and motor neurons distributed throughout the skin, joints, and muscles. And the sensory neurons transmit information toward the central nervous system through afferent fibers. Motor impulses travel from the central nervous system back to the body along efferent. So well, here's a mnemonic. So afferent ascend in the cord towards the brain. Efferent exit the cord on their way to the rest of the body. The autonomic nervous system then regulates heartbeat, respiration, digestion, and glandular secretions. 
So it manages the involuntary muscles associated with internal organs and glands. It helps regulate body temperature by activating sweating or piloerection, depending on whether the body is too hot or too cold. And obviously all of these functions are automatic, so they're independent of conscious control, and you can kind of compare autonomic and automatic. So, yeah. So the autonomic has two more subdivisions, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. They act in opposition, so they're antagonistic. So, for example, we have sympathetic nervous system can accelerate heart rate, heart rate and inhibit digestion, while the parasympathetic decelerates heart rate and increases digestion. The main role of the parasympathetic is to conserve energy, so that's associated with like resting and sleeping states, and it can reduce heart rate and constrict the bronchi. The parasympathetic is responsible for managing digestion by increasing peristalsis and exocrine secretions. Acetylcholine is the neurotransmitter responsible in most parasympathetic responses. Um, so, yeah, quickly, some of these functions are to constrict the pupils, stimulate flow of saliva, constrict the bronchi, slow heartbeat, stimulate peristalsis and secretion, and stimulate bile release, and contract the bladder. So all of those conserve energy. And then we have sympathetic nervous system. It's activated by stress. So anything from a mild stressor to emergencies. Um, and it's closely associated with rage and fear or fight or flight. When it's activated, the sympathetic nervous system will increase heart rate, redistribute blood to the most to the muscles of locomotion. Increase blood glucose concentration, relax the bronchi, decrease digestion and peristalsis, dilate the eyes to maximize light intake, and release epinephrine into the bloodstream. So, basically, all the functions are opposite of the parasympathetic. Instead of constricting, we dilate pupils, inhibit salivation, relax the bronchi, accelerate heartbeat, stimulate sweating or piloerection, Inhibit peristalsis and secretion, stimulate glucose production and release, secrete adrenaline and noradrenaline, and inhibit bladder contraction and stimulates orgasm. So, sympathetic is fight or flight, parasympathetic is rest and digest. Um, so now we're going to look into the brain and how it's organized. So different parts of the brain will perform different functions, so it's, it's good to remember that. So we could have one part of the brain processing sensory information while a totally different part of the brain maintains activities of the internal organ organs. Um, so let's start. So the brain, if you didn't know, is covered with a thick three-layered sheath of connective tissue, collectively called the meninges, think meningitis. Um, the outer layer of connective tissue is the dura mater and is connected directly to the skull. The middle layer is a fibrous web-like structure called arachnoid mater. And the inner layer connected directly to the brain is known as the pia mater. The meninges help protect the brain by keeping it anchored within the skull and the meninges resorb 
cerebrospinal fluid, which is the aqueous solution that nourishes the brain and spinal cord and provides a protective cushion. Cerebrospinal fluid is produced by the specialized cells that line the ventricles of the brain. And then we can further divide the brain from its outer shell into three basic parts. We've got the hindbrain, the midbrain, and the forebrain. So brain structures associated with basic survival are located at the base of the brain. And then brain structures with more complex functions are located higher up. And this kind of connection between brain location and complexity um, is due to evolution. The hindbrain and the midbrain were brain structures that developed earlier, and they formed the brain stem, which is the most primitive region of the brain. The forebrain developed later, including the limbic system, which is a group of neural structures primarily associated with emotion and memory. Aggression, fear, pleasure, and pain are all related to the limbic system. And the most recent development in evolution of the human brain is the cerebral cortex, which is the outer covering of the cerebral hemispheres. And it's associated with everything from language processing to problem solving and from impulse control to long-term planning. So let's look at some of the major divisions in the function. So we have, like I said, cerebral cortex functions with complex perceptual, cognitive, and behavioral processes. The Oh, and this is all in the forebrain. Um, then we have the basal ganglia, which is functioning in movement, the limbic system, emotion and memory. The thalamus is the sensory relay station. The hypothalamus is regulating hunger and thirst and emotion. In the midbrain, we have the inferior and superior colliculi, which are functioning with sensory motor reflexes, the hindbrain. We have the cerebellum, which is refined motor movements. Medulla oblongata, which is the heart and vital reflexes like vomiting and coughing. Particular formation, which is arousal and alertness. And the pons, which is communication within the brain and breathing. So let's go to how the brain develops. So in prenatal life, the brain develops from the neural tube. That tube is composed of three swellings, which correspond to the hindbrain, midbrain, and forebrain. The hindbrain and forebrain divide into two swellings later, creating five total swellings in the mature neural tube. Um, so, let's start off with the hindbrain. So this is where the brain meets the spinal cord. The hindbrain, also known as the rhomb encephalon, controls balance, motor coordination, breathing, digestion, and general arousal processes, like sleeping and waking. Um, it manages vital functioning necessary for survival, pretty much. And during embryonic development, it divides to form the myelencephalon, which becomes the medulla oblongata, and the metencephalon, which becomes the pons and the cerebellum. In the developed brain, the medulla oblongata is a lower brain structure that is responsible for regulating vital functions like breathing, heart rate, and digestion. The pons lies above the medulla and contains sensory and motor pathways between the cortex and the medulla. The top of the hindbrain mushrooming out of the back of the pons is the cerebellum, which helps maintain posture and balance and coordination. And damage to the cerebellum causes clumsiness, slurred speech, and loss of balance. And so if we think of someone who's drunk, that kind of alcohol will impair the cerebellum's functioning. Then we have the midbrain, so which is just above the hindbrain. It's known as the mesencephalon, which receives sensory and motor information from the rest of the body. It's associated with involuntary reflex responses triggered by visual or auditory stimuli. 
Um, there are several prominent nuclei in the midbrain which are called colliculi. The superior folliculus receives visual sensory input and the inferior folliculus receives sensory information from the auditory system. The inferior colliculus has a role in reflex reactions to sudden loud noises like a bang. Then we have above the fore, above the midbrain is the forebrain, which is the pros or prosencephalon, which is associated with complex perceptual, cognitive, and behavioral processes. It's associated with emotion and memory, and it's the forebrain that has the greatest influence on our behavior. So the functions aren't necessary for survival, but they're kind of like the intellectual and emotional capacities that are characteristics of us goody humans. During prenatal development, the prosencephalon divides to form the telencephalon, which forms the cerebral cortex, basal ganglia, and limbic system, and the diencephalon, which forms the thalamus, hypothalamus, posterior pituitary gland, and pineal gland. So, we just discussed some big structures, but let's think about how we even map the brain. Um... So neuropsychology is the study of functions and behaviors associated with specific regions of the brain, and it's applied in research settings where people want to associate specific areas in the brain to behavior. Um, it's applied in clinical settings with evaluations of patient cognitive and behavioral functioning and diagnosis and treatment of brain disorders, and it has its own methods and technology. So um, we can look at patients with brain lesions, so looking for damage to a specific structure coupled with the loss of the function. Um, one problem with this is that such lesions are really isolated to a specific brain structure, so the impairment could be attributed to any of the damaged structures, and pinpointing a specific link is pretty difficult. Um, sometimes they study lesions in lab animals, so you can have precisely defined brain lesions um, through extirpation. Um, or you can produce lesions by inserting tiny electrodes inside the brain and then applying intense heat, cold, or electricity. Um, and you can use great precision for this with specific instruments, stereotactic instruments, which can give high resolution and 3D images of the brain. Um, if you ignore the fact of these ethical slash cruelty concerns, these really help us understand neural structures. Um, there's also electrical stimulation of the brain and recording the brain activity. Um, so this kind of stimulation on the patient's cortex with a small electrode can activate or causes groups of neurons to fire and then activate the behavioral or perceptual processes associated with those neurons. Um, so we could have electrodes stimulating neurons in the motor cortex and this stimulation could lead to specific muscle movements. Um, if the electrode stimulates the visual cortex, the patient may see flashes of light that are not really there, and then this kind of stimulation ends up creating cortical maps. So you need the patient to be awake and alert, um, So and luckily there's no pain receptors in the brain, so you only need local anesthesia. Um, yeah, and depending on where you put the electrodes, you can elicit sleep, sexual arousal, rage, terror, and then once you turn off the electrode, it's very simple. The behaviors will cease. Um, you can also use electrodes for electrical activity produced by the brain itself. 
Um, so sometimes individual neurons are recorded by inserting ultra-sensitive microelectrodes into individual brain cells and recording their electrical activity. Um, and then electrical activity generated by larger groups of neurons can be studied using EEGs or electroencephalograms, um, which requires putting several electrodes on the scalp. And then you can look at broad patterns of electrical activity. And this is super non-invasive and commonly used. And a lot of people who do research on sleep choose seizures and brain lesions rely heavily on this. Um, and then we have another non-invasive mapping procedure, which is regional cerebral blood flow, or RCBF, which detects blood broad patterns of neural activity based on increased blood flow to different parts of the brain. So RCBF relies on the assumption that your blood flow will increase to regions of the brain that are engaged in cognitive function. So like listening to music will increase blood flow to the right auditory cortex because music is processed in that region in most individuals' brains. And then to measure blood flow, the patient will inhale some kind of harmless radioactive gas. And then this special device can detect that radioactivity in a bloodstream and can correlate radioactivity, radioactivity levels with regional cerebral blood flow. Um, and then we have some other common scanning devices and methods of visualization, um, such as a CT scan, computed tomography, aka a CAT scan, or computed axial tomography scan, where multiple x-rays are taken at different angles and processes processed by a computer to produce cross-sectional images of the tissue. We have a PET scan, which is positron emission tomography, in which a radioactive sugar is injected and then absorbed into the body, and its dispersion and uptake throughout the target tissue is imaged. And then we've got the lovely MRI, the magnetic resonance imaging, in which a magnetic field that interacts with hydrogen atoms is used to map out hydrogen-dense regions of the body. And we have fMRI, which is functional magnetic resonance imaging, which uses the same base technique as an MRI, but specifically measures changes associated with blood flow. So it's useful for monitoring neural activity since increased blood flow to a region of the brain is coupled with its neuronal activation. All right. Um, I think I'll go through a quick example and then I'll stop us here. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about multiple sclerosis. Haha. <laughs> um, it's a demyelinating disease that results in a host of neurological and physiological symptoms, including muscle weakness, numbness, spasms, visual problems, pain, unstable mood, and fatigue. Um, and. Hmm. Actually. Yeah, we can just look at that. I think I will stop us here and we'll pick up looking at parts of the forebrain, going over influences on behavior, the endocrine system, and some development features. Yeah, thanks for listening.